Thank you for tuning into sermons from Liberty Baptist Church in Newport Beach, California. Our goal is to help you know God more and take the next step in your spiritual journey, no matter where you're at. If you have questions about God or about Liberty, you can connect with us at libertybaptistchurch.org. We pray that the Lord will use this message to be a help and encouragement in your life. Just to give us all a little review, a little context of where we find ourselves in the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul has been detained for a couple of years. He's in chains, he's imprisoned, he's in Caesarea, that Mediterranean uh, coast city, and uh, he, has, he has stood in mock and really farcical trials, he has stood before Jewish mobs, um, he has stood before Roman politicians, before the high court of the Sanhedrin, he has stood before Claudius Lysias, before Felix, before Festus, and now where we find ourselves, he's about to enter a packed arena on the Mediterranean coast there in Caesarea, this beautiful seaside town, and King Agrippa is going to hear his argument. Paul has been sitting locked up for over two years, and really there's no charges been brought, well, there have been charges brought against him. There's no evidence against him. There have been some, some lies, some misrepresentations, and because of the politics between the Romans and the Jews, the Roman authorities who Paul appealed to have said, well, until we get more information, just stay in your holding cell. That's been years now. He's been sitting there. And uh, Felix was there. Then Festus came. Now, King Agrippa, with his, his, uh, his sister, who is also his wife, it's an incestuous relationship, Agrippa and Bernice come to visit Festus. And, and, and King Agrippa says, and Festus tells the story, I've got this guy, the Jews want him dead, I don't know what to do with him. And Agrippa says, I'll hear him. And that's where we find ourselves. King Agrippa is here. King Agrippa was the last of the Herodian dynasty. How many of you have heard the name Herod the Great? You've heard of Herod the Great? That was the, the man that, that decreed to put all the babies to death. He wanted to kill baby Jesus. Agrippa is his great-great-grandson. And uh, he is the last of the Herodian dynasty. Agrippa's great uncle uh, put John the Baptist to death. His dad imprisoned Peter and killed James. This is not a good man. He's living with his sister wife. He's not, not a God-honoring man. That is who Paul is about to, uh, to, to speak before. And uh, Paul is, is, is pre being prepared to be sent to the highest court of appeals. Paul has said, I appeal to Caesar. He wants to go, and he's going to go before Nero. But before he does, Caesar Augustus, um, he, he's going to have this. And we'll pick it up. Let's pick it up for a little review. The last four verses, five verses of Acts 25. Let's begin in verse number 23. Verse 23, it says, of chapter 25, And on the morrow, when Agrippa was come, and Bernice, that's with great pomp, and was entered into the place of hearing with the chief captains, the principal men, Festus commandment. At Festus commandment, Paul was brought forth. So there's this big ceremony, very intimidating. Paul is the lone prisoner. Everybody's there to watch the spectacle. And Festus said, King Agrippa, and all men which are here present with us, ye see this man, about whom the multitude of the Jews have dealt with me, both at Jerusalem and here also, crying that he ought not to live any longer. This is the guy that the Jews want killed. But when I have found that he had committed nothing worthy of death, and that he himself had appealed to Augustus, I have determined to send him, of whom I have no certain thing to write unto my Lord. 
Wherefore, I have brought him forth before you, and especially before thee, O King Agrippa, that after examination had, I might have somewhat to write, for it seemeth to me unreasonable to send a prisoner, and not withal to signify the crimes laid against him. So he says, I'm hoping, Agrippa, you can help me get to the bottom of this case. I'm sending him to the Supreme Court, if you will. I'm sending him to Caesar Augustus and, and to the highest, highest authority in the land. But I don't know what to tell him. I, I've not found anything he's done wrong. So maybe you can figure out this trial so I can write the right things when I send him off. That's where we're at. And now we find our text. We're going to look at the first eight verses of chapter 26 to find our test this morning. Before we jump into verse 1, what is Paul going to do with this opportunity? He's been sitting there for two years. He now has a, another audience, a chance to prove his innocence, a chance to plead for his release. What is Paul going to do with this opportunity? We're going to find that rather than plead for his release, he's going to use it as another opportunity to share the gospel with multitudes. What an amazing perspective on trials that Paul had. You see, to Paul, trials weren't personal burdens to escape from. They were opportunities to publicly lift up Christ. I don't know about you, but when trials come my way, my first thought is, how can I get out of this? God, fix this. Take it away. Make it easier. Financial trial, God, pay the bills. A physical trial, God, heal. A, a relationship trial, God, mend that. A, a, whatever it might be, whatever the trial is, what I want is God, take it away. But Paul had learned something about that. He had that thorn in the flesh, and he asked God three times to take it away. And God said, no, I'm not going to take it away, but, but my grace is sufficient for you in your trial. And so Paul had said, most gladly, therefore, because of the benefit of trials in my life, most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Somewhere along the way, God had taught Paul, and Paul had learned through the trials of life, that trials were not primarily burdens to be escaped from. They were primarily opportunities to lift up Christ. What a great perspective. What a paradigm shift. That trial you're walking through, I'm not saying Jesus, he, he, he prayed in, in, in the Garden of Gethsemane, let this cup pass from me. Paul prayed. I'm not saying it's wrong to pray for God to heal or for God to, to pray for God to take away a trial. What I am saying is primarily what we ought to ask is, God, how can you glorify yourself through this? How can I use this to help and reach others? That's what Paul's going to do. So let's see what his message is in this situation where he might finally be able to gain his freedom. Would you read Acts 21, verse number 1? Would you read it aloud with me, verse 1? Ready? Begin. Then Agrippa said unto Paul, Thou art permitted to speak for thyself. Then Paul stretched forth the hand and answered for himself. I might have said Acts 21. I meant Acts 26, verse number 1. Acts 26, verse 1. So Agrippa says, okay, all the pomp and circumstance is done. The spectacle is over. We're seated here. You're on trial. Paul walks in in chains. You can speak. And Paul raises his arm, a gesture of respect, and he begins to speak. Look at verse 2. I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because I shall answer for myself this day before thee, touching all the things whereof I am accused of the Jews. Basically, Paul says, I'm excited I get a chance to, to answer and to tell you what's going on. 
especially because I know thee to be expert in all customs and questions which are among the Jews. Wherefore, I beseech thee to hear me patiently. Agrippa, it's going to take a while. I, I'm, I'm going to need you to give me a little bit of time, but I know you understand all the dynamics between the Romans and the Jews, and I know you know where I'm coming from, and, and so I'm excited to be able to talk to you about this. Verse 4. My manner of life from my youth, which was at the first among my own nation at Jerusalem, know all the Jews. Everybody knows my story, Agrippa. I, I, was, I was a ruler, and he's going to go on. Verse 5. Which knew me from the beginning. If they would testify that after the most straightest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. He says here, everybody, my, my past is not hidden. My past is not a surprise to anybody. Everyone that, that's accusing me knows who I was, knows how I grew up. They know my past. They know the things, as, as Pastor Jay just saying, they know the, the scars in my life. They know that I used to consent to the death of Christians. He's going to get into that a little bit more. We're going to see that tonight in our study a little bit more in Acts 26. They know all about the bad things I've done. My past is an open book. And I was, uh, like some of you that are here, he's saying to the assembled audience, I was a ruler of the Pharisees. I kept all the rules, but I had no relationship with Christ. Verse number six, and now I stand and am judged. Look at this word for the, what's that next word there? I'm judged for the what church? For the, of the what? I am judged for the hope of the promise made of God unto our fathers. Unto which, what's that word? Unto which promise our 12 tribes instantly serving God day and night. What's that next word? Hope to come. For which hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused of the Jews. Why should it be thought a thing incredible with you that God should raise the dead? In these two verses here, you see the word promise given twice, and the word hope given three times. Three times he says the hope, and twice he says the promise. Paul is referencing some things in this, in this address to King Agrippa that would have been obviously evident and clear to his audience that may not be immediately obvious to us some 2,000 years later. In verses 6 and 7, he uses those words hope and promise five times. There were promises, he says, that our forefathers had received and have lived with a hope all these years. And it's the same thing I believe. The people that are accusing me believe the same thing I do. We just differ. I believe the promises have been fulfilled and they don't. In fact, the Jews, the ones that accused him, they prayed for the fulfillment of these promises in their worship day and night. And I want us to look a little bit this morning. What promises had the people of God received in previous centuries? This morning, I don't often do this, but this morning we're going to turn to a few places in Scripture. Often we stay right in our passage, but I'm going to ask you, if you will, to see some things. We're going to go back and put, put a marker. We're going to come back to Acts 26. Go to the first book of the Bible, if you will, Genesis chapter number 3. The third chapter, first book of the Bible, all the way at the beginning. We're going to look this morning at two of the earliest covenants or promises that their forefathers lived under. That those that came before Paul, that Paul, I believe, is somewhat referencing here, the promises, I want you to see in Genesis chapter number 3, in verse number 14. Genesis chapter number 3, in verse number 14. 
And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle. This is, this is the fall of man when Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden. You're cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. What does he say? The serpent. He says, because of what you've done in tempting Eve, uh, I'm going to curse you. And how many of you do not like snakes? Let me see. You don't like snakes. How many? If you saw a snake today, you might scream or run or jump. You would not be staying where you're at. We did one time, I ran a, uh, a teen conference in Northern California. We'd have about 1,500 teenagers come to our church every year. And one year we did a, we do, we do stupid things with teenagers to try to entertain them at conferences, don't we? And we did this game where it was a, a, a clear aquariums with different things in the aquariums. And, uh, and we, we, you had to the, put a blindfold on and they had to reach in. This one was pastors or youth pastors. Reach in and figure out what was in there. We, one of them, it was just like a hairbrush. And so you reach in and it's pokey and you're, you're kind of scared. Like, is that alive? And it's just a hairbrush. So it's kind of funny. Well, one of them, there were mice that were running around in there. And, and uh, a guy reached in. He was blindfolded. He reached in. I, there's a picture. It's in slow motion. He reached in, felt the mouse, kind of picked it up and moved. And the mouse flew through the air. Flew through the air and was running through the auditorium. And nobody could catch it. And, 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 and the thing was running all the way through. There was another one where we had a, a, little, uh, a little baby python. And uh, I, I say python. Is that right? Ball, yeah, ball python. We bought it at PetSmart, I think. And, uh, and it was in this aquarium. And one youth pastor's wife was up there blindfolded. And she's feeling all around. And there was a snake. And she couldn't figure it out. She pulled it up. She's doing this. It was all curled up. She's unrolling it. She's trying to figure it out, and, and the crowd is going crazy, right? How many of you would not want to play that game? You don't like? Part of that, really, snakes are, are one of the greatest fears, and I believe some of that you can point back to. There's, he said, I'm going to put enmity between you, between your seed the, and, 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 and there. And then in verse 16, he says, unto the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. It, what does he say? It's not going to be easy to give birth to children. There's going to be, you're going to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. On the way to church this morning, uh, Trey, our, our nine-year-old, was in the back seat, and he said, he said, Mom, what's the greatest injury you've ever had? And she said, well, I don't know. I've never, I've never broken a bone. She said, maybe at one time a baseball hit my nose and it was bleeding. She said, well, I had five kids, I guess. She said, I, I guess that's it. She said, it's not really an injury. He said, well, but, but I, and, and we were going through it. It's not really an injury, but that's probably the, the worst physical experience of her life. Well, that comes from here. Verse number 17, and unto Adam he said, because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground. For out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. What was the promise that God gave to Adam? God gave a promise to Adam that judgment's coming. Because of your sin, judgment's coming. So Paul says here, our forefathers were living under some promises. 
and things that, they, that I believe as well, he says. And, and Adam and Eve were given a perfect world to live in. And, and, and God said, you chose to rebel against my commandment for you. You've sinned. So here's my promise to you. Your sin has separated you from me. And your sin has consequences that will affect you daily. And without a cure, will affect you eternally. Why do you and I endure pain? and sickness and death? Why is there crime and injustice and corruption in this world? Why is our world broken because of this promise in Genesis 3 from God to Adam because of the sin of mankind? The rebellion, judgment is coming. Your, there are consequences, God said, for sin. Your sin has to be paid for. Paul said it this way to the, the Romans in Romans 6 verse 23, for the wages or payment of sin is what? Death. There are consequences to our sin. There's judgment coming. Paul said it this way in Romans 5, verse number 12. Wherefore, as by one man, Adam, from Genesis, sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Death passed upon all men. What is the promise? Because of sin, judgment is coming. By the way, we deal with it daily in our, in our sinful world, but there's an eternal judgment coming. I'm not going to lie, that's kind of a bummer of a promise. Judgment's coming. That's not a real exciting one. There are consequences for our sin, but it leads us to our next promise. About nine chapters later, would you skip over to Genesis chapter number 12? And here's what Paul's referencing in his defense to King Agrippa. Genesis chapter number 12. We call this the Abrahamic covenant. Genesis chapter number 12, let's look at the first three verses, if you will. Verses 1 through 3, Genesis chapter number 12. Let's read those aloud this morning. Ready? Begin. Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. What do we have? Here's the second promise. Here's the second promise. The promise to Adam, judgment is coming. The promise to Abraham, salvation is coming. Salvation is coming. Abraham, I'm going to make a nation of your children. We know the story. Abraham and, and, and uh, Sarah, they were old. They were like 90 years old, 100 years old. And they started laughing. You're crazy. We're not having a kid. And, and they try to take matters into their own hands. And, and where we get the Israeli-Arab conflict today goes back to Abraham's lapse of faith, not believing in God. And God kept his promise with Ishmael that he would make a great nation of them, what we would call the Arab nation, the, the, the Arab people. That is the nation. And God said, I'll make a nation of of your offspring. That is from Ishmael with his handmaid Hagar. And then you have Isaac, which would become the nation of Israel. And that was God's promised son, that covenant. And God said, through your family, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. What is he saying? Through your bloodline, Abraham, I'm going to bring a savior. I'm going to bring a Messiah. I'm going to bring the cure of sin that came from Adam. I'm going to make a great nation of you. The promise to Abraham Abraham, salvation is coming. The entire Old Testament, 39 books covering about 1,500 years, the entire Old Testament boiled down to its simplest essence is the story of these two promises. Judgment is coming and salvation is coming. We need a Savior because of the sin of our, our father Adam, 
and we're looking for a Savior. And the promise through the prophets and the, all through, you see Jesus all through the Old Testament, not by name, but by type and by prophecy and, and these things. And, and the Old Testament is really the story of a world that is living in the reality of the first promise. And they're living it with the hope of the second promise that salvation is coming. Uh, Old Testament is a people living under the judgment of sin, looking for the promised Messiah, their Savior, to deliver them from that judgment. It's a sin-cursed world looking for the cure for their sin. Isn't that still where we live today? A sin-cursed world looking for the answer for that sin, the answer to the, the, that curse, if you will, those judgments. Paul says, and so that, these are the promises. And Paul says to the, the, the assembled crowd, he says, you've been told your whole life of this promise and you've been living with the hope that Messiah would come. And he says, I have a message with you. Now turn back, if you will, to Acts 26. You've listened well to our introduction. Turn back to Acts chapter number 26, verse number eight. Would you read Acts 26, verse number eight aloud with me this morning? Acts 26 Verse number eight, let's read it aloud. Ready? Begin. Why should it be thought a thing incredible with you that God should raise the dead? Here's Paul's message. He talked about the promises. The promise from Paul, salvation has come. The promise to Adam, judgment is coming. The promise to Abraham, salvation is coming. And Paul stands up before Agrippa, and you know what his message was? It's come. That promise you've been waiting for, that hope that your entire, that, that thousands of years of our forefathers have been living, man, I hope to see the day of Messiah. We pray about it every morning and every night as, as Jews they would have here. We, we, in fact, Orthodox Jews that would still be praying in that way today. God, would you send your Messiah? Where is he? We're looking for him. They're still living for that promise, looking for that hope. That, and Paul is standing up and saying, you don't have to look anymore. Hope has come. He has a name and it's Jesus. Salvation has come. That's what Paul tells the crowd. It's what he tells King Agrippa. It's what he tells Bernice and Festus. It's what he tells all of those standing there. Jesus has come. Paul says, how do I know? And he continues. We'll look at this in a little more detail tonight. But, but how do I know that Jesus has come and that he rose again from the dead? I want you to read verse number 15 aloud. G Paul met Jesus after his resurrection in person on the road to Damascus. Verse number 15, Paul said, he tells him his testimony. And I said, who are thou Lord? There's a voice speaking, a, a light shines. He's, he's on the ground. He looks up and he says, who are you, Lord? It's obvious that you're somebody bigger and more powerful than me. You've stopped me dead in my tracks. Who are you? And he said, I am who, church? Who? Salvation has come. I stand here before you King Agrippa, to let you know that the promise that our forefathers lived in is the same promise that I lived in, that the hope that we look for, and I'm here to tell you that I'm living in the fulfillment of that hope. How do I know? Jesus has risen from the dead. What is Paul telling this godless crowd when he could have argued for his own release? Instead, he decides to preach the gospel. What does he tell this godless crowd? He says, hey crowd, Jesus has come. Jesus has died. Jesus has risen again. Jesus has conquered death. Jesus has paid for your sin. Jesus has taken your judgment. Jesus loves you. He wants to save you. He's the hope that we were promised. Stop looking everywhere for him. He's already come and he's back in heaven and he's paid for your sins. 
He's the fulfillment of that hope. He's the one you've been looking for. He is Messiah, Paul says. He is the answer. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the promised one. Please understand your hope has been fulfilled. Sanhedrin, Pharisees, Sadducees, Agrippa, Bernice, Festus, first century Jews, Romans, 21st century Americans, Jesus Christ is our living hope. And that's my title this morning, very late in the message to give you my title, Our Living Hope. What does Paul say? Verse 6, I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made of God unto our fathers, unto which promise our 12 tribes instantly serving God day and night, every day they serve him looking for this. They hope to come, Messiah, for which hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused of the Jews. What does Paul say? Yes, our fathers lived under the, the promise, the bummer of a promise that judgment has come to our sin-cursed world because of our rebellion. But they lived under the hope that salvation is coming. And my message to you today is not, I'm an innocent man and you need to let me free. My message to you today is, our hope is alive. Jesus Christ is our living hope. Salvation has come. You don't have to look anymore. You don't have to try to earn it yourself. You don't have to try to give a bunch of money to get it or try to be a good person. You don't have to be baptized to get it. Our living hope, Jesus, has come and paid for every one of our sins. And this morning, I want to, for the final few moments of our message, I just want to remind you that we have a living hope. Do you feel hopeless this morning? Jesus wants to be your hope. Do you feel unloved this morning? I'm here to tell you this morning that Jesus loves you. Do you struggle with hurt over sins that others have not forgiven you of? I'm here to tell you that Jesus wants to forgive every one of your sins, past, present, and future, if you don't know him already as Savior. He died and can forgive you. Do you live cynically because of promises that people you trusted have broken? Rest in the truth that God always keeps his promise. Paul's message was, you can have hope, Agrippa. The promise has been fulfilled, Jews. Salvation has come, Romans. Jesus is your hope, Festus. I didn't give you the second half of Romans 6.23 earlier. I told you about judgment is coming. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Salvation has come and it's a free gift, and it's available to anybody under the sound of my voice. You today can have every one of your sins forgiven. You can know that heaven is your home. It's not about being a member of Liberty Baptist Church or giving in the offering a little later today or doing some good work. It's about trusting in that living hope, Jesus Christ. What about Romans 5.12? I read earlier, by one man, Adam, sin entered in the world, so death passed upon all men. What about the rest of that passage? It's beautiful. It begins in verse 14. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses. Judgment. Even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression. Even those that were good people. Who is the figure of him that was to come. But not as the offense so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one, many be dead. Oh, here's the good news. The bummer promises judgment has come. But here's the good news. Much more, the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. The hope is for all of us. 
And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. For the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more, I like those words, they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ, our living hope. Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience were many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. What does he say? Yes, sin is real. Yes, judgment is real. Yes, hell is real. Yes, sin must be paid for. Yes, there are consequences to our sin. Yes, it really stinks that when you and I have children born into our house, we don't have to teach them to be selfish, to be disobedient, to be rebellious, to be be unkind. We don't have to teach them any of that. It stinks that the the truth of the promise to Adam still lives today. That, that sin is a part of every one of our lives. It was passed to us from our father, Adam. No one taught you to lie. No one taught you to cheat. No one taught you to steal. But we've all done one or more of those things in our lives, haven't we? That stinks. But much more. Oh, much better is the promise that salvation was coming in the Old Testament. And Paul stood up and said, as by one man, he brought a bunch of mess to this world. Another man brought a whole bunch more good to this world. One man made you a sinner, the other one can make you righteous. One man destined you to hell, the other can take you to heaven. And what is Paul saying? Jesus, you guys are living in hope. You're hoping for something. And he says, he's alive and his name is Jesus. Our living hope. I'm going to ask Janine and Jay to make their way to the platform. He's saying, yes, God kept his promise to Adam that judgment was coming. But he also kept his promise to Abraham that salvation was coming. And Paul let them know that promise had been fulfilled. He said our hope had come and was alive and his name was Jesus. 2018, there's a beautiful song that was written. Talks about our living hope. The second verse says, who could imagine so great a mercy? What heart could fathom such boundless grace? The God of ages stepped down from glory to wear my sin and bear my shame. Our hope became flesh. He stepped down from glory. The cross has spoken. I am forgiven. The King of Kings calls me his own. Beautiful Savior, I'm yours forever. Jesus Christ, my living hope. I'm gonna wrap up our message after this for a few moments, but I want you while you're sitting right there, we'll go to the first stanza. And I want you where we're sitting, Right there from the first stanza, I want you to think about this in relationship to Paul standing before Agrippa, a group of people that were hoping the promise would be fulfilled, and we sit here today hopefully believing and knowing it has been fulfilled. We can live in hope because he's alive, and if you're here today and you don't have the hope of heaven, today can be the day that that living hope, Jesus Christ, gives you eternal life and forgiveness of sin. How great the chasm that lay between us. 
How high the mountain I could not climb. The promise of the judgment. In desperation, I turned to heaven and spoke your name into the night. Then through the darkness, your loving kindness tore through the shadows of my soul. The work is finished. The end is written. Jesus Christ, my living hope, who could imagine so great a mercy? What heart could fathom such boundless grace? The God of ages stepped down from glory. Take your curse. To wear my sin, to take your sin and bear my shame. Here it is. The, the cross has spoken. I, I am forgiven. He kept his promise, the King of, of kings, kings calls me his own. Beautiful Savior, I'm yours forever. Jesus Christ, my living hope. And Hallelujah. Praise the one who set me free. Oh, Hallelujah. Death has lost its grip on me. You have broken every chain. There's salvation in your name. Jesus Christ, my living hope. Then came the morning. Here's what Paul's trying to tell him. That sealed Why are you the surprised promise. the woman rise from the dead? Your buried body began to breathe. Yes. Out of the silence, the roaring lion declared the grave has no claim on me.
really the one in bondage that day? Paul in chains or the men without chains? And he preached to them, your living hope has come to break every chain. You hear this morning and you don't know that eternal hope, that eternal promise. You don't know Christ as Savior. Make today the day of your salvation. If you do, it should change how you walk through life. It should change your prison experiences, if you will. It should change your perspective and the way that you view those things. Why? Because God kept his promise. Salvation had come. And as we close, I want us to think about one more promise. The promise from Jesus, eternal victory is coming. The promises just get better and better. First one was judgment's coming. I don't like that one. Salvation's coming. I like that one a little bit more. Salvation has come. I like that one even more. And eternal victory is coming. The choir sang about it this morning. He always wins. He always wins. You say, well, it doesn't seem like he's winning right now. Oh, we may lose some, some battles, but he won the war already. And Jesus, he, he said, he promised that eternal victory was coming. That promise should give great hope to the believer. Growing up, Michael Jordan was my favorite basketball player. I, was, uh, I loved the Bulls, tried to watch as many games as I could. Uh, there were most of the country, I think, at that point, especially kids that age, became Bulls fans no matter where they lived. A lot of us did at least. And uh, loved the Bulls, and I, I loved their, would get goosebumps with their player intros. I can still hear it that, I think it's by the Alan Parsons Project, that song. I can still hear it. And then the announcer coming on and, and watching that, I would try to be the announcer in my, in my living room from North Carolina. At guard, 6'6", six, six. Michael. And I remember going through all that. I could, have done, I could have had another career, couldn't I? When he left the Bulls, it was a bummer. He was still in his prime. Decided, the, the best basketball player on the planet at the time, decided he wanted to go play baseball. That stunk. He left, he left us high and dry. Those of us that had committed our lives to him, we had committed our fandom to him. And he just left us to go bat 200 in double A. It was, it was rough. Those were, those were rough years. Scottie Pippen getting migraines in big moments and refusing to go in to shoot the game-winning shot. Fighting with Tony Kukoc while Jordan struggled from minor league spot to minor league spot. But you know what gave great hope to Bulls fans after a couple of years of struggle and failure? Two little words put out in a press release by a sports agent. Two little words gave an entire city and millions of fans hope for the future. I think we have a picture of the press release from Falk Associates. On March 18th, 1995, I was a junior in high school. The following statement was released by Michael Jordan through his personal attorney and business manager located in Washington, D.C. in response to questions about his future career plans. What were his two words that gave Bulls fans hope? What were they? I'm back. I'm back. And you know what? We had some good years. We, with, with Jordan coming back, he said, I'm coming back. He's coming back to the United Center as Bulls fans. We had reason to rejoice. He was coming back to the United Center. MJ was coming back to the league. We were assured victory, and he won three more uh, NBA championships. How much more, Christian, should the words of our Savior, I will come again, give us hope and reason to rejoice, for we are assured victory. 
Just like the Bulls fans on that 1995 day were assured in their heart of hearts, we're going to win again. The, the greatest player on the planet's coming back. We're going to win again. How much more, not just some fallible basketball player, but how much more should we as Christians be assured of victory and have hope in our lives because our Savior, our living hope has said, I will return. What did he say in John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3? Let not your heart be troubled. Are you troubled this morning? Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God? Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I, I would have told you, and I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go, he's telling his disciples, you're about to go through some tough times, but here's my promise to you. If I go and prepare a place, I will come again. Four words that give us hope. Eternal victory is coming. I will come again. In Paul's letter to Titus, he says it this way. It's, it's my life verse, Titus 2, 13. He says, as believers, we are looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. What does he say? The promise of Christ's return. What should it be to the believer in this day and age? A blessed hope. Oh, those Old Testament Jews, they were looking for that hope of his first coming. We, as New Testament believers, we're looking for that blessed hope of his second coming, of his return. As believers, we live in hope. No matter what this world throws at us, our hearts are not troubled, for he promised he will come again. The believer should never be hopeless. Yes, judgment is coming, but salvation has come, and eternal victory is coming for the believer, and that can allow us to live in victory and in hope in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation. If you're here this morning, and you've listened well, if you're here this morning, and you don't know the hope that only Jesus can give, I want you to know this morning, if you're watching or you're listening to this on archive some weeks or months or years later, I want you to know that Jesus loves you. He died for you. He wants to be more than just a hope. He wants to be your savior. Let him become your living hope. If you're a believer, don't live from a place of doubt and fear and defeat. Live from hope and victory. Not because, oh, I'm a self-made man. I can do this in my own strength. No, I live in from victory. Why? Because of who he is not because of what I am or what, what's going on around me. Christ has come, and he's coming again. Let not your heart be troubled. We have a living hope. Thank you for listening to Messages from Liberty. Tune in next week for more Bible teaching or subscribe on iTunes to stay up to date with our current series.